2: From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told
1: week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig.
2: For many, that music and those words were the gateway to a new medium, podcasts. Episodes from the first season of Serial, which was released in 2014, have now been downloaded more than 300 million times. In the years since then, the world of podcasting has boomed. Today, there are more than 4 million podcasts spanning almost every topic imaginable. The Joe Rogan Experience from New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is a daily. I am Michelle Obama and this is the Michelle Obama podcast. Around a third of Americans listen to at least one podcast each week, and that has made it big business.
1: Spotify spent nearly a billion dollars on exclusive podcast content, including $200 million for Joe Rogan.
2: As listeners tuned into podcasts, businesses like Spotify poured in money, as its chief executive, Daniel Ek, explained to investors last year.
3: We saw such a significant opportunity to expand our platform and our audience, so we decided to go aggressively
2: after podcasting. Now... Spotify and others are pulling back, as the industry grapples with overinvestment and a long tail of shows that are struggling to make money. So what does the future hold for the business of podcasts? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on markets, the economy, and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, we look at the future of an industry close to home, podcasting. First, we'll unpack the business model of the new radio. Then, we'll hear
1: about how the industry has evolved over time. All of the world's biggest technology companies invested significantly during the pandemic only to realize that they could operate in a much leaner way now.
3: And finally,
1: we'll ask how many
3: of those 4 million podcasts that exist today will ever really turn a
0: profit. In the measurable terms, I think it's a very, very small percentage of podcasts that are actually making money.
2: Hey, Mike. Hey, Tom. So uh, any
3: idea where Alice is today? So the official line is that Alice is off in LA schmoozing with the big wigs at the Milken conference, but I can't stand that up. That's what she says. I haven't corroborated it. So sadly, she can't join us this week.
2: Uh, sounds like a tough life for our, our Wall Street correspondent. Well, this week on the show, we are going meta, as the kids say, with a business podcast on the business of podcasts. So Mike, what are some of your favorite shows other than All the ones The Economist produces, of course. So yeah, if you rank all
3: of the ones The Economist produces first, I hate to admit on air that there are other podcasts at all, to be honest. I do enjoy Odd Lots from Bloomberg. There's an economist called David Beckworth who does a podcast called Macro Musings. I very much enjoy that one as well. I've been known to dip into some sort of non-business and economics podcasts. Listen to a bit of Chapo Trap House in my time. You may be able to tell... There's some slightly different tastes in my household as to our audio (laughs) consumption. But I quite enjoy it. You know, it's nice to get a bit of variety. What are your go-to podcasts?
2: Well, there's a few shows that I listen to for work. So Acquired and Business Breakdowns, kind of long-form business podcasts. But for fun, my wife has also gotten me into a BBC podcast called You're Dead to Me which is this kind of mashup of history and comedy, which I'm happy to recommend. But the reason I wanted to spend an episode on this industry is that podcasting has gone through an incredible phase of growth as a medium over the past few years. One way of looking at that is ad revenue. So ad revenue in the industry grew from a little over $100 million in 2015 to somewhere near $2 billion last year. Now, that's still only about 1% of online advertising as a whole, but it's growing very rapidly as a share. And podcasts are particularly popular among younger people, which hints at a bright future ahead for the medium. So 67% of American adults aged between 18 and 29 listened to at least one podcast in the past year, compared to 49% for all adults. And that's according to research from Pew. I don't know about everyone else, but even 1% to me
3: sounds like a lot in the scope of how large online advertising actually is. It's clear that podcasting has gone through this massive growth spurt. Can you help us understand a little bit about how the business itself is actually structured? It seems to have evolved into a slightly more sort of complex beast than people might think.
2: Yeah, so obviously the most important link in the chain where it all starts is People like you and me, Mike, and Alice when she shows up as well. We are what they call the creators in the industry. And sometimes creators operate on their own. Sometimes, like us, they operate as part of a media company like The Economist. And sometimes they're backed by production companies like Pushkin Industries or Wondery or Gimlet, which is a company that Spotify bought a few years back. And there's a couple of ways that creators make money from podcasts. If you're listening to Money Talks, you'll hear some ads at the start, in the middle and at the end of the podcast. That's one source of revenue. The other is that some podcasts also charge listeners a subscription fee. Okay, so that explains the sort of creation side a little
3: bit about how podcasts are generated in the first place. What about the sort of publishing side of it? How are podcasts then released into the wild?
2: Yeah, so next you have what are called hosting companies like Acast or Captivate or Buzzsprout, and they do a few things. One is that, as the name suggests, they take your audio file and they host it online. They also act as a kind of middleman with advertisers, taking the ads that companies want to sell and placing them into the right podcasts. And they also provide tools to help with other types of monetization, like subscriptions and also some analytics as well.
3: So many of our listeners will be hearing this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Amazon's Audible. Where do they fit into all of this?
2: Yeah. So the kind of final stage here is the streaming platforms. And what they do is they aggregate all of these podcasts and make them available to listeners, whether that's through the Spotify app or the Apple Podcasts app or the Audible app. Confusingly, those tech firms have also increasingly moved upstream, though. So Spotify is a good example of that. They also bought an integrated podcasting technology company called Anchor, and that effectively turns Spotify into this kind of one-stop shop for podcasts. Apple and Amazon, they've also gotten into their own original podcasts as well. Got it.
3: But we've also seen some of the heat coming out of all of this, right? not money talks, obviously, because we are the ironclad value stock of the podcasting world. But I've read in recent months that Spotify and Amazon have both scaled back their
2: investment in the industry. So are we looking at a sort of plateau? Well, that's the debate. And there are optimists who argue that the industry has gone through a big investment phase that's really positioned it for the next stage of growth. And there are pessimists who point to some of the limitations of podcasting as a medium. To start the debate, I wanted to talk to Michael Mignano, who was one of the co-founders of Anchor, which Spotify acquired, and then became head of Spotify's podcasting business and is now a partner at Lightspeed Ventures. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
1: Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. So
2: the industry has gone through a pretty incredible boom over the past few years, just in terms of the amount of investment, the amount of new companies starting up in the space, the amount of new content being generated. What caused that flurry of interest in podcasting?
1: So podcasting has been around for a number of years, right? It was born in sort of the earlier part of the millennia, around the time of the iPod And it sort of just slowly gained momentum in terms of popularity, I would say incrementally. And then something happened in 2014, 2015 or so. And really it was the success of the show Serial, which I'm assuming all your listeners will remember. That show really sort of thrust podcasting into pop culture. And it finally reached a point where it became pretty clear that podcasts were going to be a medium that many, many, many people around the world would want to listen to. And so I think that was a bit of a wake-up call for many of the world's biggest companies that had previously built really, really large businesses based on media on the internet, right? So I think a lot of the world's biggest companies realized that podcasts were also going to be one of the most popular forms of media in the world. And in realizing that, I think the major tech platforms saw an opportunity to modernize the technology that powered podcasting in an effort to enable them to be able to monetize it the same way that they monetize sort of every other form of media on the Internet. Whether that were publishing or videos like on YouTube or streaming music, podcasts had this sort of structural challenge underneath it all that made it really hard to sort of aggregate and monetize at scale. And so I think the combination of the big tech companies realizing that it was going to become very popular and the realization that there was a playbook to follow based on other form of media that would enable them to grow the size of the market significantly. And that's why we saw such a massive investment. You mentioned modernizing the
2: technology behind podcasting. I understand that if you compare podcasting to, say, videos on YouTube, the ads that are delivered to viewers on YouTube are far more tailored than the ones that are delivered to podcast listeners. And that's a legacy of the technology that podcasting was originally built on. So how has this changed
1: over time? When podcasts got started back in the earlier part of this millennium, they were built on top of a standard called RSS. RSS stands for really Simple syndication. It's the standard that effectively powered blogging. And the great thing about RSS is that anyone can host an RSS feed, right? That's what made podcasting feel a little bit like pirate radio back in the day. But there are drawbacks to RSS. The biggest one being that there's no sort of back and forth exchange of information between the RSS feed and the host of the content and the client or the application that's consuming the content. So, in other words, if you publish a new podcast to your RSS feed, that podcast gets pushed down to the app, and that's sort of where the interaction bends. This is very different than, like you mentioned, uh, YouTube or other forms of modern streaming where the content of the media is effectively delivered in real time, which means that the monetization can effectively be personalized in real time per the listener. That doesn't happen with RSS. In fact, the data that the host or the creator gets back from whether or not the podcast was delivered, is extremely limited. They don't know anything about how much of the content was consumed, who listened. Any other sort of information that sits below the surface is completely lost. And as a result, the monetization and the ads that powered RSS traditionally were effectively baked into the audio. the industry has evolved a
2: lot in recent years. Can you tell us about how podcasting has changed as the industry
1: has matured? Number one, the catalog has gotten a lot bigger. And so you went from a catalog of effectively a couple hundred thousand shows to many millions of shows. And secondly, is that the world's biggest platforms have sort of upgraded the infrastructure away from RSS and more to a streaming-based model, which enables them, again, to not only deliver the content in real time but to actually personalize it and aggregate all of the shows on the platform up to advertisers in a way that they weren't able to do with RSS. There's been a tremendous amount of investment to not only bring the world's biggest shows onto some of the biggest platforms like Spotify, but also to bring creation tools in-house and to bring new forms of monetization in-house, whether it be streaming ad insertion or new models such as uh, subscription-based podcasts. So There's been a tremendous amount of investment that's been made over the past five to eight years about upgrading this infrastructure. And now I think we're at a place where you're going to start to just see podcasting grow sort of very, very steadily and sort of grow into the opportunity that now exists in streaming media for podcasts. Since the start of the
2: year, we've started to see the industry deflating somewhat with businesses slimming down their investments and and the size of many deals being scaled back as well. What's going on here?
1: My sense is the pullback you're seeing right now is a result of two things. One thing that we've experienced over the past couple of years is sort of an upfront initial investment in modernizing that infrastructure and making it such that advertising can function at scale and the market and the industry can grow. And then, number two, I think the other thing we're seeing is a general pullback that's no different than the pullback we're seeing in the entirety of tech right now, right? all of the world's biggest technology companies invested significantly during the pandemic, only to realize that they could operate in a much leaner way now in the past you know, year or two. And so while there, I think, has been some recent attention on some of the major platforms that do operate in podcasting right now pulling back, I think it can be grouped alongside all of the other general pullbacks we're seeing throughout technology.
2: Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, Michael seems pretty optimistic to me. If he's right, that all sounds like good news for money talks. But what's your read so far, Mike?
3: Yeah, I think I'd be inclined on the face of it to agree with him on the fact that we've seen a sort of general pullback in everything relatively new trend-wise or technology-wise over the last year or 18 months and that's mostly a financial cycle thing and it doesn't really speak too much to the merit of the product you know that hits sort of everything that's worthwhile or less worthwhile and i think it's hard not to view audio and podcasting as a sort of massive secular trend you never know exactly how that's going to be monetized or which business model will eventually come out in the wash But it reminds me a bit of the original move of media from print to online, news media, that is, which a lot of companies messed up very badly, giving away huge amounts of free content. Some of the advertising models that they pursue worked, but most of them failed, really. You've seen a lot of moves to subscriptions among major media companies. Ultimately, one of these business models has to work for someone, though, if this is going to be a secular trend people back then were starting to read things online. They were never going back to print. Obviously, that's true to some extent for podcasts as well. This is now how these people consume media. They're not going back to how they previously consumed that content. It seems sort of fairly embedded to me.
2: Yeah, this question of how you best monetize podcasts is a really interesting one. And I agree with you that these secular shifts in how people consume content, whether that's reading newspapers, or whether it's online streaming of TV and music, they seem to eventually coalesce around a sustainable business model, given enough time. But that process does create winners and losers, and it's interesting to me how Spotify and others have really leaned into a strategy of vertical integration in podcasts, which should presumably help hedge against the risk of those businesses becoming commoditized in just a narrow part of the value chain.
3: Yeah, one way media organizations like The Economist monetize their podcasts is to use them as a platform to cross-sell the subscription products like the paper. Speaking of which, I'm looking forward to reading our piece on green resource nationalization in this week's paper following chile's decision to nationalize its lithium latin american nationalization of natural resources is this sort of reliable staple of every commodity boom sometimes it's seen as a signal of the very top of a commodity boom so i'm really keen to hear what it means now for the energy transition generally tom what about you what are you looking forward to in this week's print coverage
2: I'm looking forward to reading a piece by our colleague, Tom Wainwright, on the potential for AI to disrupt journalism. There's, of course, been a lot of discussion around generative AI over the last few months, sparked by the appearance of ChatGPT last November. And since then, we've seen a flurry of new startups and also established companies, whether it's Microsoft or Adobe, integrating generative AI into their existing product lineups. There seems to still be a lot of unanswered questions here, particularly around reliability, but there's certainly a lot of momentum around this new technology. Hopefully not too much momentum or else uh, you and I might be out of a job soon though, Mike. This feels like a very sort of meta week in economist
3: coverage. We've got the podcast on the business of podcasts. We've got the print coverage on AI destroying journalism. We're talking about ourselves quite a bit. But listeners can read those pieces and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com slash podcast offer for a month's
2: free subscription. That's if you're not a subscriber already. And after the break, we'll hear a much bleaker view of where the podcast industry is heading. Before the break, we heard a fairly upbeat assessment of the state of the podcast market from the man who used to lead podcasts for Spotify. But not everyone is so bullish. Nick Hilton, a podcast production company founder and industry consultant, gave his assessment of the industry in a blog entitled 2022, The Year That Podcasting Died. I spoke to Nick to find out why he's so gloomy. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Pleasure. So over the past few years, we've had a massive boom in the podcast industry and a huge proliferation in the number of podcasts out there. How many of these are actually making money? Is this another superstar market like music where a small sliver of the content captures the vast majority of the market?
0: So I think if you're looking at advertising and the amount of shows that wash their face with advertising, I think you'd be looking at probably less than 1%. I mean, the reality is that it's a very premium listening figure group that makes money from advertising. And I think probably here in the UK, where audiences are much smaller than in the US, you're probably looking at needing about 50,000 listeners per episode. And that's assuming that most places need a production budget of five, 600 pounds just to make the episode each week, let's say. But then there are all sorts of other important figures that places take seriously in terms of their return. So for The Economist, it may not be actually relevant what your advertising revenue on the podcast is. It may be about brand building. It may be about generating subscriptions. And those subscriptions may not be direct. They may be circuitous. People may listen to a podcast and then happen to walk past a shelf and think, oh, buy a copy of The Economist. So those are really hard to track. And it would be difficult to say, oh, this podcast doesn't make money. But at the same time, in the measurable terms, I think it's a very, very small percentage of podcasts that are actually making money.
2: Now, you wrote a pretty provocative article declaring 2022 to be the year that podcasting died.
0: What is going on in the market now? I would say that podcasting right now is in a place where I wouldn't invest in audio-only business right now. I think that the audio-only podcast is something that looks antiquated. I think that the old idea of podcast open based on RSS, a technology that has been around for donkey's years, I think that technology looks too old to be functional in this space. So I think that the audio-only podcast is also something that is being gazumped increasingly by YouTube, which I think is the biggest competitor to podcasting. It is the podcasting company that no one talks about in terms of being a podcast company, but YouTube is offering all of what podcasting offers and so much more. Everyone wants to be the YouTube for podcasting, my analysis would be that YouTube is already the YouTube for podcasting. And the reality is that turning a video podcast into an audio podcast is as complicated as closing your eyes. Turning a audio podcast into a video podcast is a real, real sweat. There's no good way of doing it. So almost everyone I'm working with currently says, let's do video first. We'll put it out as an audio podcast too, but we want to make sure we're ticking that video box. And so I think the future of podcast is maybe not called a podcast, but the future of on-demand audio-visual content is video first, audio second, and that those two things can have a really nice synergy, but unfortunately, it has to start with video. Another
2: interesting development we've seen is the integration of live events with podcasts. The Rest is History, for example, recently did a big three-city tour with their show. Do you think that will be a significant part of how the podcast business evolves going forward as well?
0: Undoubtedly. I mean, we see it in the music business. You know, there's this idea that artists now put out albums in order to sell stadium tours. And that's been because revenue through streaming has reduced to such a pittance that actually ticket sales, where you can still charge 60, 80, 100 quid, that's where you can get a bigger slice of the pie. So, Definitely, Rest of History and Rest of Politics are a really good example of the fact that they can generate a huge amount of money through advertising, but in one night, but they can make several times that just by performing at the Albert Hall or wherever. And loads of podcasts are doing these live events, and not least because they just record the audio and they put it out as an episode too, and they get all the advertising revenue. So for them, it's a total win-win. And I think that live events and merchandise and subscriber-only communities have basically come about because... Advertising hasn't been a really satisfactory way of generating income for most podcasters.
2: Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: So, Mike, what do you make of what you've heard? Should we uh, tell Alice to stay in LA with her big wigs because the podcasting gig is doomed to fail?
3: So, I think this all gets directly to the point about different media models And how they managed with the shift to people consuming things digitally more broadly. What you definitely did see, which I think Nick is hinting at here, is economies of scale developed and there was a lot of consolidation. Think of the proliferation of digital media companies slightly over a decade ago, and then think about how many of them you can name that are really left functioning now and how many you've seen go through the wall, basically, even more so. Think about how many media companies right now operate on the basis of a single way to produce and consume media, a single sort of revenue stream. This is all getting very meta again, but obviously you're listening to an Economist podcast right now. Tom and I will finish this up and we'll get back to our day jobs, writing for the paper. At some point this week or this month, we might moderate a panel for our events team. We might write newsletters for the newsletters we've launched in the past few years will do something for Espresso, our daily news app. Now, they're not paying five people. There's not five companies producing this, but you get five products there and a range of subscription money and advertising revenue from it. So yeah, I think you're going to see this sort of bifurcate into two models, your personality-centered podcasts, where you're building up an audience that will happily stump up for subscriptions and tickets to see live shows and all sorts of other accessory items and then a lot of others that are part of large and diversified media businesses. And that shouldn't be a surprise really any more than it was a surprise when the sort of pure digital media companies trying
2: to operate solely on advertising couldn't actually make that much money either. It's a really interesting point, and it very much builds on what Nick was saying about integrating podcasts into a wider web of media, whether that's video or live events, or for a company like us, traditional print media. And what you're doing there is you're leveraging your assets, whether that's content or whether it's personality, in multiple different ways to make the economics work. And podcasts are are clearly a medium that resonate for a lot of people, a lot of whom you might never have been able to reach any other way. And so that allows you to pull in a much larger potential customer base than you otherwise might have to make use of those assets. With that, it is time for us to pivot to our stats of the week. Mike, what have you got for us?
3: So I will say that we've got a little note here to pause for Alice's stat of the week, but Alice is evidently too good for us now and she hasn't sent a stat in. (laughs) So make of that what you will about her level of commitment to money talks in general. Getting a real grilling today. (laughs) My statistic of the week is negative 40%. I wanted to go for something close to home, a real sort of Southeast Asian data point. And it is the price of durian in the Mekong Delta, which has plunged 30 to 40% per kilogram since early April. This is apparently down to a lack of Chinese demand. And we're specifically talking about RI6 durian. Now I will admit. This isn't one of the markets I actually follow very closely. (laughs) I don't know what the lack of Chinese demand signals here. Don't know whether that's a signal about the production or the consumption side of the Chinese economy. Some China economists should get into that and get in touch with us to let us know what's going on.
2: Sorry. So what is RI6
3: durian exactly? RI6 durian is a fairly strong and sweet tasting durian, as I understand it. I will occasionally have a bit of Durian, but I must admit, I don't know the finer details. I just don't want to butcher the statistic. I don't know how many price indices there are in the Durian (laughs) market. Uh, As I say, I'm not familiar with this. I will acquaint myself more with the data and with the business of Durian.
2: Well, demand for Durian may be down, but demand for luxury cars is up. So my statistic of the week is 25% which is the revenue growth in the first quarter of this year, year on year for Porsche's cars. Part of that is driven by the resurgence of spending in China, but even in rich countries, the luxury car market, like other areas of luxury spending, continues to do very well, despite all of the sluggishness in consumer spending. And at least part of that is down to the fact that despite equities and other assets having come down from their post-pandemic feverish highs, they're still trading well above pre-pandemic levels. So the S&P 500, for instance, is up more than 25% from its January 2020 level. So if you have a lot of assets, things are actually looking pretty good for you at the moment. So that's reassuring if you're feeling really squeezed by inflation to know
3: that the median guy buying a Porsche is feeling just fine. It's reassuring in these troubling
2: times. Exactly. You've got to look for the uh, the bright spots where you can. And with that, I want to thank Michael Mignano and Nick Hilton. And thank you
3: for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com.
3: Today's show was produced by Dan Asher,
2: Marie Keyworth and Lawrence Knight. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist.